Well, this week we have been blessed to be able to be studying the sanctuary, and I know some of you have been able to be a part of our Vacation Bible School for the whole family, and uh, each evening here in the sanctuary we've been exploring some of the aspects of the sanctuary and the sanctuary furniture, and we've gone on a little bit of a journey through the sanctuary this week. We've uh, started in the courtyard and gone through the holy place and into the most holy place, And uh, last night we were studying about the Ark of the Covenant and how it is used on the Day of Atonement. And today I want us to just focus for a little while on one aspect of the sanctuary that is a very important aspect of the sanctuary. It's uh, one of my favorite studies because I believe it's very relevant for the days in which we're living. I don't know about you sitting here this morning, but I believe we're living the last days of this earth's history, at least of the history as we know it. Um, I believe it has many, many more years, many more millennia of history yet to be unfolded, but it's going to be a very different history than the history that we are experiencing today. It's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, as the Bible promises, wherein dwells righteousness. You see, the problem is that sin has derailed God's plan for His creation. He didn't intend for it to be this way. He created man in the beginning for his, for his uh, pleasure, for his uh, society to be able to have fellowship and relationship with him. He created us as emotional beings in his own image. He is an emotional being. He is a relational being. He is not just one God. He is one God who is three, right? He is, a, he is more than one He is a relationship, and we are created in His image to also be in a relationship, and specifically to be in a relationship with Him. And sin derailed that plan. Sin separated us from God, the prophet says. Your sins and your iniquities have separated you from me. And God doesn't like that separation. The whole gospel, the entire plan of redemption, is calculated for one thing, and that is to get rid of the separation between God and His creation. That's what the gospel is all about, to reunite mankind with His Creator God. That is what the purpose of the plan of redemption is. And the the gospel as it was presented in the sanctuary, in symbols and in ceremonies, the gospel in the sanctuary reveals the truth of how God wants to separate not His people from Himself as sin has separated Him, but He wants to separate sin from His people so that there can be a reunion between God and His creation. Amen? And so that's what the sanctuary is all about. And so we're going to look in, in a little, uh, the few minutes that we have today, we're going to look together at what the way in which the final ceremonies of the sacrificial ceremonial year dealt with the separation of sin from God's people. And so we've been on this journey, and today we're going to be spending time mostly here in the, in the holy place as we think about what, most holy place, as we think about what took place at the very end of the sanctuary process. Now, you remember, and uh, even if you weren't here, you were probably well aware that when a sinner brought a sacrifice to the sanctuary, he was to confess his sins on the head of that lamb, not to the priests, but in, in practice to transfer that, those sins to the innocent sacrifice. Just like we, when we confess our sins, we recognize that it, our sins are going to cost, or they did cost, the life of an innocent sacrifice, the blood of Jesus Christ. 
And after confessing those sins, he would, the sinner himself would take his knife, a knife provided by the priest, and the sinner would actually slice the neck of that sacrifice, and the blood would be spurting out to be caught in a receptacle there by the priest. Now, this blood represented the life that was being shed, being spilt, this innocent life that was ebbing out of this sacrifice. And as that blood was taken then into the sanctuary, it, trans- it symbolized the transfer of sin from the sinner to the sacrifice and from the sacrifice to the sanctuary. And so you have not only is the blood uh, being taken to the sanctuary, but also the, the, uh, the flesh of the lamb itself would be taken. Part of it would be burned, and part of it would be, off, would be taken to the priests, and they would actually eat it as part of their diet. Um, that was part of their provision, was a portion of the sacrifices that were offered. And so the priests themselves were bearing the sins of the people, you might say. Throughout the year, there was this accumulation of sin. Now, if you're a sinner, that's a good thing, right? Because no longer am I a Am I responsible for those sins? I have gone to the sanctuary, and by faith I have transferred my guilt from me to the innocent sacrifice and to the process which heaven has arranged to take care of those sins. And being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? And there was a, there was a, a remedy for the sin problem that, that was, to be, uh, was taking place in the camp of Israel. Now, when we think about these sacrifices and offerings, some might say, well, God is such a gory God, asking for all these sacrifices and wanting all of these offerings and all these lambs to be killed. Isn't that sort of a, isn't that sort of just sort of grotesque? Isn't that uh, brutal? Um, Certainly, animal rights activists would have something to say about that today, right? This is not a very pretty picture, but sin is not a very pretty picture, friends. That's the point that God is trying to bring to His people, is that there's a high cost for low living. There's a price to pay for sin. Sin may seem to be gratifying, but it is costly. I remember one time I was in Norway, and there was a young lady coming to my classes, and, and she was said to me, she'd been in, in, in sort of the bottom of the, what the world has to offer, and she thought she was having a good time with the drugs and with all the lifestyle and the parties, and she said to me, one thing I learned when I came came to Christ, I learned that in the world, the more fun you have, the higher the price you have to pay afterwards. But with Jesus, the more fun you have, the better you are, are, better you are off afterwards. And there's a totally different experience. God is trying to communicate through these sacrifices that there is a, there's a price to pay for sin. And uh, that price, of course, was paid by Jesus Christ. In fact, he says in 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, the prophet says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? You see, God was not intending that there should just be this constant stream of slaughter and bloodshed. That wasn't his purpose. The purpose was that as we recognize the cost of sin, that we will allow him, that we will allow him to make us new inside out and write His law in our hearts that we don't have to constantly be, be uh, going to the temple with our slaughterings and our sacrifices. He wants to change our life. What He wants is what? He wants obedience, obeying the voice of the Lord. That's what He wants. He wanted to teach them that, and that was the purpose of the sanctuary service. 
That was the purpose of these sacrifices. He wanted that to be a part of their own experience. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. God is not a narcissistic God who simply wants to have all of these sacrifices offered for Him. No, He wants our hearts. Did you catch that? He wants our hearts. That's what He wants. But once a year, as, as this uh, accumulation of sin had been going to the sanctuary, going on to the priests all year long, once a year there was a special ceremony which was to, which was to symbolize the eventual good riddance or getting rid forever of sin from God's people. Now, it, every year these cycles of ceremonies, the Passover and Feast of Trumpets and Feast of Pentecost and Feast of Unleavened Bread and, and the Yom Kippur and Day of Atonement, uh, all of those ceremonies would just recycle at the, at the, after every year, right? They would just begin again. And so we can see that God was trying to teach us something, and as we get to the end of that cycle, it would represent what's going to happen at the end of the plan of salvation. Does that make sense? This is a, this is a, a year that is, that is a type or a symbol of what God would do in future. For example, we have Jesus coming as the Passover lamb, specifically on the ceremony of the Passover. Now, we've studied in the sanctuary this week, and over and over and over we've seen that things point forward to Jesus, right? The lamb points to Jesus, the priest points to Jesus. For that matter, most of the furniture in the temple points to Jesus, the light of the world, the bread of life. Jesus' righteousness mingled with our prayers. All of it is, is, is representing Jesus. But there are also, besides the articles of furniture, we haven't spent much time on the ceremonies that would happen throughout the year. Jesus was represented, particularly Jesus first coming as the, as the lamb to the slaughter, was represented by the feast of the Passover. And it's no coincidence that Jesus presented himself for his final death and sacrifice for us at the time of the Passover. In fact, Jesus died. The Bible records that, that Jesus died at the, at the evening, at the time of the evening sacrifice, and this was at the time of the Passover. So just as that lamb, the Passover lamb, you might say, in the temple was about to be slaughtered, there was a, you can read it in your Bible, there was a mysterious hand that tore the, 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 the veil of the temple between the holy place and the most holy place tore it, not from the bottom up. You might think a several hundred-year-old veil would be easy to tear. It was about six inches thick. This was not a, just a little flimsy, little flimsy piece of fabric. This was a heavy-duty woven veil, and it was torn from the top to the bottom. And the, the, the startled priests were left with a view into the holy place, and the, 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 in their shock and amazement, the lamb, the Passover lamb that they were about to be killing actually escaped their grasp. And it all was a symbol of the fact that there's, those ceremonies had come to an end because the real Jesus, the real lamb of God, had died. There was to be no more animal sacrifices, no more celebrations of these feasts that had pointed forward to, to Jesus true coming and the true gospel. Now we can look back and we can see the meaning and we can understand it ourselves without those feasts. And so on the Day of Atonement, however, there was a, 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 a special event that had to do with the cleansing of that accumulation of sin that had been coming to the temple all year long. 
and getting rid of it forever. And that's what we're going to look at here today. Um, there's a couple of things I want to just point out. Some of you, we, we talked about this last night, but the Ark of the Covenant was in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. And I, think, I find this very interesting, at least, at least this understanding of the dimensions of the Hebrew sanctuary, um, would have the, the courtyard, 50 by 100 cubits, bisected in half, and the center of the court, of the first half of the court, would be the altar of sacrifice. The center of the second part of the uh, courtyard would be in the most holy place, and especially the Ark of the Covenant. It seems as though these two events are particularly important in the grand scheme of things in the plan of salvation. The death of Christ on the cross, represented by the altar of sacrifice, and the Ark of the Covenant, wherein the final reconciliation of atonement and atonement uh, between God and His people would take place. And this Ark of the Covenant, you'll remember, was created, uh, was given, there were specific instructions given as to how it was to be created, and there were to be, um, there was to be this mercy seat on top of the Ark, two cherubim, uh, uh, cherubim on, a cherub on either side of the mercy seat, looking towards one another with a wing covering the mercy seat, and uh, God said in Exodus chapter 25, that is where I will meet with you. That is where my presence will dwell. This is where the Shekinah actually resided in the sanctuary in the wilderness. And this piece of furniture is mentioned 185 times in the Bible. Last night we studied four, five, six different names that it's called. Ark of the Testament, Ark of His Strength, um, Ark of Adonai, uh, Yahweh. Um, there's a whole bunch of different ways it's referred to. 185 times more than any other article of furniture in the sanctuary. Now, this is ironic, you would think, because the rest of the articles of furniture saw daily use, or at least weekly use. There was something happening every morning, every evening. There were sacrifices. There was, I mean, the priests would wash their feet in the labor before they went to the altar to, to offer their sacrifice, and again before they went into the sanctuary with the blood. And um, on, on certain feasts, on certain occasions, they would wash, their, wash themselves repeatedly. Um, some, sometimes on the Day of Atonement, I think it was seven times the, the priest bathed themselves, and then no less than ten times, I believe, they would wash their feet and their hands. So the labor was used all the time. The uh, altar of burnt offerings was used all the time. Altar of incense, candlestick, trimmed and filled morning and evening. But the article of furniture mentioned most in the Bible is the article of furniture used once a year. Once a year. And that was the Ark of Atonement. This is the whole focus of the earthly sanctuary was in the Ark of, Ark of the Covenant and the Day of Atonement. And so we can sense some of the importance. We saw how the, the word Ark is simply something to hold valuable, something precious to be placed in it. And that, that which was placed in the Ark of the Covenant was particularly the tables of the covenant. In fact, when, the, when Moses or Aaron were given instructions to put the golden pot of manna and Aaron's body, budding rod in the Ark of the Covenant, it was always in reference to the tables of the testimony or tables of the covenant. In other words, he said, put the golden ark before the, before the testimony. Put the rod that budded before the testimony. So the main item, you could argue, that was to be housed in the ark was the tables of testimony. If you read in Exodus 25, Exodus 34, and Deuteronomy 10, you'll find exactly what those tables of testimony were. Those are the two tablets on which were written what? The Ten Commandments. You see, in the holy place, in, I'm sorry, in the most holy place, 
right there with the Shekinah glory where God dwelt, was the standard of righteousness, of holiness. And the sinner, out in the courtyard, it would seem impossible that we, the sinners, could ever come into that presence. But that's the whole point of the sanctuary. The whole point of the sanctuary is to bring us back into reunion, into at-one-ment with God. And on the Day of Atonement, as the blood of the sacrifice would be sprinkled on this special day on the, the lid, the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, you can see the holiness of God and the price that is paid for sin coming hand in hand. Mercy and justice have kissed together, the psalmist says. They've met. The sin which I should be paying the penalty for, Christ has paid the penalty for. Amen? And when that blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat, it's as if to say, that sacrifice is enough. That sacrifice is sufficient. Even in the presence of holiness, that is accepted. And you and I are accepted in the beloved as well. And so, I want us to look now in Leviticus chapter 16. And while you're looking there, I just want to bring your attention to this little chiastic diagram. Leviticus chapter 16, in Hebrew literary, um, Hebrew literature, a literary device they often used was a chiasm. And a chiasm has ascending and then descending corresponding concepts. And then the apex, the the peak of the chiasm where it reverses and starts matching in reverse order what it's just been saying, the peak of that chiasm is the thought that the Hebrew writer is especially trying to, um, in, to uh, emphasize. And this is found throughout Hebrew literature. You read the Old Testament, and it's a little harder for us to read it because when we read the Old Testament, we're not reading it in the original language. In the original language, much of the Old Testament was written in verse form. So, sort of like poetry or a song. And some of the newer translations, your Bibles will actually have the parts that are in verse. In, um, in, you know, instead of being justified, it'll be like centered, and you can see it's, it's a verse form. Um, and that's nice, because you can see, oh, the, the writer re- wrote this not as just sort of like the rest of his block of text, but he read it, it, wrote it in verse form. Of course, we, we lose the poetry and, and some of the rhythm and timing and, and all of the Hebrew, but we at least understand it was written in verse, not in, in the regular prose. And so, as you, as you read it, often these verses will f- include chiasms. What they're trying to emphasize is at the apex of this. And here, this is uh, Dr. Richard Davidson's um, diagram where he explains that the Day of Atonement, chapter 16 of Leviticus, is at the center of a chiastic structure in the book of Leviticus. The whole point of the book of Leviticus revolves around Leviticus chapter 16. So I want to just read together with you a few verses from Leviticus chapter 16, and uh, we're going to look at some of the things that were going on there in the ceremony of the Day of Atonement. Leviticus chapter 16, and we're going to begin reading with verse 11. It says, And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and shall make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself. Now, what you're going to see here in Leviticus 16 is, whereas during the year atonement is made for the people, the transgressors, those who sin, today there's going to be atonement made for not just the individuals, but for the entire congregation and for the priest 
and for the temple itself. Very, very interesting. Only on the Day of Atonement. Verse 11, He shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord, and his hands full of sweet incense being beaten small, and bring it within the veil. And he shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony, that he die not. And he shall take of the blood of the bullock, and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. And he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, that is, for the people, and bring his blood within the veil, and do with the blood as he did with the blood of the bullock, and sprinkle it before the mercy seat, and before the mercy seat. Notice, verse 16, and he shall make an atonement for what? What does it say? The holy place. Because of what? the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions in all their sins. Very clear here why the Day of Atonement was taking place. Because throughout the whole year, there had been a constant flow of forgiven sins coming into the sanctuary. And the blood from those sacrifices sprinkled before the veil, sprinkled on the horns of the altar of incense, were, as it were, a record of the sins. But friends, in the real plan of salvation that God has been carrying out for the last 6,000 years or so since the fall of man, in the real plan of salvation, there is no intention for there to be a vault in heaven somewhere containing the records of this terrible era of humanity when there is sin in the world. There's not going to be some museum we can go in and see all of our sins still there recorded. No, there's going to be a time Listen to me carefully. There is going to be a time when the whole universe is washed from the curse, the plague that we call sin. The only records and the only memories of sin are going to be the reminders we see in the scars, in the hands and in the feet and in the side of our Savior. There will be no more record of sin, no more memory of sin, no more evidence of sin. We'll know that we're redeemed. But what would it be throughout eternity to be pulling up memories of disgraceful deeds and thoughts and actions and words? That wouldn't be heaven, would it? No, there's going to be a cleansing. And what's being symbolized here in the Day of Atonement is the final good riddance of sin. There's an there's a atonement made for the holy place because of the sins. And so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. If we continue on, we'll notice that verse 17, there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goes in to make an atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made an atonement for himself. For who? For himself and for his household. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the high priest and the rest of the priests, right? There's, there's atonement made for the tabernacle, for the priests. Why would the priests need atonement? I mean, they've been doing God's business. They've been washing themselves in the labor. They've been symbolizing their own holiness of doing about God's business. But the fact of the matter is they have been bearing the sins of the people. And uh, they're not going to bear it forever. And neither is Jesus. The Bible records in Hebrews chapter 9, a chapter that is specifically devoted to discussing this passage in Leviticus 16 in the Day of Atonement. At the end of Hebrews chapter 9, the Bible says, unto those who look for Him will He appear the second time without sin. 
unto salvation. Because Jesus is no longer, when He comes as King of kings and Lord of lords, He's not going to be a sin-bearing Savior. His carrying the sins of the world is finished. And it's finished with the end of the Day of Atonement. It finished with the final ceremonies that we are discussing here in Leviticus 16. And it says, He shall go out, verse 18, shall go out unto the altar that is before the Lord and make an atonement for it, and shall take of the blood of the bullock and of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar round about and shall sprinkle of the blood upon it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and hallow it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. Do you understand what's happening here? The day of atonement is to cleanse the sanctuary. The day of atonement is to take that record of sin that's been there and flowing into it throughout the year and it's to cleanse it. That's what the Bible says. Is to cleanse it from its defilement, from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. Verse 20, And when he has made an end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. And we'll talk about that here in just a minute. So what we can see is that throughout the year, sin was, was transferred to the sanctuary. On Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, which happened once a year, atonement was made for the sanctuary, for the priests, and for the people. Um, now, what would this be symbolizing? We can talk about the fact that sin is going to be done away with, but I want us to see very clearly what is happening. The, the transference of sin from the sacrifice and the blood to the sanctuary and so forth symbolized, are you with me? It symbolized what happens when you and I as a sinner confess our sins and are forgiven. Amen? Is that pretty clear? That's what happened when the lamb was sacrificed and so forth. That was symbolizing how in the real plan of salvation, we can, by faith in Jesus, lay our sins upon Him. And as we lay our sins upon Him, according to the type or the symbols, they are transferred to our sin-bearing Savior, and they are transferred to the sanctuary. Do you know that there is a record of our sins that is kept? I mean, God has perfect records, right? And let's just look at a couple of things that... Um, that we can see. Let's look in Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. Turn with me in your Bibles there. To Acts chapter 3. This was supposed to be good news. Acts chapter 3, and we're going to see how there is a blotting out of sin that takes place, and the Bible even reveals when it will take place. Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. This is Peter preaching. To the people. And he says in Acts chapter 3 and verse 19, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be what? Blotted out. And then when does he say that'll happen? When the what? Times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Now Peter is using a phrase here that is very, very familiar to his Hebrew audience. He's using a phrase that's talking about the latter rain, the times of refreshing. And this is talked about in prophecy elsewhere, that God's going to send His Spirit in the times of refreshing. He's going to send His Spirit in what we term, and the Bible sometimes terms, the latter rain. Are you familiar with that? And what the Bible here reveals to us is that there is a special time at the very end of the plan of salvation when God will enact a blotting out of sins. And what Peter is trying to say is, look, your sins can never be blotted out if they're not first what? If they're not first confessed and forgiven. Does that make sense? We need to, it, we need to take our sins to the sanctuary before they can be blotted out. A, a Hebrew who did not confess his sins before the Day of Atonement 
would not have opportunity to confess those sins after the Day of Atonement. Are you, are you with me on that? In fact, those who did not afflict their souls and make sure that they had, they had made things right with their neighbors and with their God before the Day of Atonement was over, they were, the, the, the instructions were there to be cut off from Israel. Not because God is a hard-hearted judge, but He wants to simply illustrate the fact that once probation closes for you and me, there's no second chance. There's no... The Bible does not teach a purgatory in which we can go and if we have enough people praying for us or giving offerings for us or we spend enough time that we'll then be able to get out and, and go on to, to, to eternity of bliss. We have this life. And if we want our sins to be forgiven, Peter says, repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. I believe that the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary takes place. Part of the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary takes place through, in the blotting out of the records of the sins of the righteous. And that's a wonderful thought. The Bible says that so far as the east is from the west, as if the bottom of the ocean, that's how far your sins are going to be from you. And the point is, it's an infinity, right? It's east from west. Um, that's not at this point, or at least not... The books of record are still there. And friends, if you and I were to say, you know what? I once confessed Jesus as my Savior, but I no longer want to follow Him. I no longer want His righteousness to cover me. I'll take responsibility for my own life. Those sins that we've confessed in the past, do you think they're going to be blotted out? No, we're going to pay the penalty for them, aren't they? We can't have it both ways. Jesus doesn't die for our sins and we, we live our own life. It's, it's either Jesus is our Savior and Lord, or He's nothing, right? And so there are some who will, sadly, at one time confess their sins, their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life, their sins are covered by the blood of Jesus, they stand in the righteousness of God, but for some reason they choose to no longer stay in that saving relationship with Jesus. And there's something else that's going to be blotted out in that case, Look with me in Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5. And this is what Jesus says, the true witness. He says, he's talking to the church of Sardis, but he's, he's teaching a, a truth, I think, that is applicable for all time. He says, those who overcome, him that overcomes, the same will be clothed in white raiment. And I will, what does he say? I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So get this. In the books of record in heaven, and I don't know what they look like. I don't have, know how God deals with all this, but I believe they exist because the Bible speaks of books of record and the judgment consisting of books of record, right? And so in the books of record, our sins are recorded. Praise God, they can be covered by the blood of Jesus. Amen? and they can one day be blotted out, obliterated forever. Amen. Hallelujah. I'm so glad for that truth and that promise. But if we choose not to, if we choose to turn away from the salvation that God has so freely offered, if we choose to not keep our, our, our minds surrendered to Him, our hearts surrendered to Him, then something else is going to happen. 
Evidently, I mean, it's a pretty strong inference, at least, in Revelation 3, verse 5. If he says those who overcome will not have their names blotted out, it's pretty strongly inferring that those who don't overcome will have their names blotted out of the Lamb's book of life. Do you see what's happening here? We have a choice, something. If you have confessed Christ as your Savior, if you have, if you have engaged the business of the heavenly sanctuary, you might say, something is going to be blotted out in the last days, before the very end of the salvation process. Either your sins are going to be blotted out, or your names are going to be blotted out. I'm, I'm thankful for Jesus, and that I can trust that it's my sins that will be blotted out, not my name blotted out. How about you? The Bible says they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. I don't want you to think here because it says, Him that overcometh, that means I need to grit my teeth and try harder. It's through Jesus' grace and through His strength and through His blood that we are going to overcome if we overcome at all, right? And so the Bible is telling us here that there's going to be a blotting out either of the sins or of the names, but the net result is the sanctuary is cleansed. The names of the righteous or the names of false professors are blotted out, and the sins of the righteous are blotted out as well. A transference away from the sin business of the sanctuary. Now, as we see this, as we see this going on, we, we want to notice a couple of things. There's something for us to do in participation of the sanctuary experience. The Bible in, uh, instructed those in the camp of Israel to afflict their souls, Leviticus chapter 16 and, verse 20, and chapter 23 told them. And so they were, to, they were to be a part of that experience. They were to be searching their hearts and, and participating by faith in what was going on in the sanctuary. They were also told to set aside those things that could lead to pride and self-sufficiency. Of all times, on the Day of Atonement was not the time to be glibly living your life and thinking you were good enough. No, it was a time to search your heart. And so there were certain things in their lifestyle they were to set aside that would lead them to thinking they were good or they were better or they were sufficient. And they were to live a lifestyle for maximum clarity of thought. And um, we can look at that in a number of uh, instances. It's very interesting when we look at the beginning of Leviticus chapter 16, the chapter that describes the Day of Atonement, it begins by reminding us of what happened to Aaron's two sons that went in to serve in the temple drunk. Very ironic that it would start with that, to talk about the Day of Atonement. But it's because, friends, it's a very special time in which we need to have an experience of every advantage that we can have, to have clear minds, clear thoughts. We have to move on, though. We don't have time to spend. I want us to look in Leviticus chapter 16 once again, and let's look at what would happen next on the Day of Atonement. Leviticus chapter 16, and we're going to read here just a few more verses as we, as we see what happened at the very end of the sanctuary process. Leviticus chapter 16, and we're going to begin reading with verse 20, 21. Uh, we'll read verse 20 since we, uh, for context here. And when he had made an end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. The live goat here, there were two goats. Lots were cast on them. One would be offered as a sacrifice. The blood would be used to make atonement um, on the day of atonement. The live goat now, something very different happens. Singular in the whole plan of the, the sanctuary there's no other cer cer ceremony or, or, or um, 
I, you couldn't call it a sacrifice, but no other offering, whatever you want to call it, like this live goat offering. Verse 21, Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over him, what does it say? What's he confessing on the head of the live goat? All the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat. So what has just happened? He's made atonement through the blood of these other sacrifices, which is, of course, pointing to Jesus. All those sacrifices point to Jesus. He's made sacrifice for the atonement. Uh, he's made atonement for the, uh, for the holy place, for the tabernacle, the congregation, for the congregation, for the priesthood, for himself as the high priest. And now he is transferring all of that sin that accumulated through the year to the sanctuary and to the priesthood. He's, he's transferring it all into one place. And where is that? This live goat. He's transferring it all to the live goat. Very, very interesting. And it says the goat, it says at the end of verse uh, 21, putting them upon the head of the goat and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited. And he shall let let go the goat in the wilderness." And so this is the sort of the end of the Day of Atonement. And it says in verse 30, um, On that day shall the priest make atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. And it ends with this giving of the sins of the whole camp onto the head of the live goat and then sending it out into the wilderness. What a bizarre ceremony. Some might scratch their heads. In fact, some people have really pondered this. And they've said, How can that live goat represent Jesus when actually... It never dies for those sins. But if it's not Jesus, what can it represent? Because no one but Jesus can bear our sins. You understand the the, the struggle that some have had as they've read this passage? In fact, it's very clear to us this this goat does not represent Jesus. Um, In Jewish literature, the um, the, the name that this goat is called, Azazel, is used to refer to demonic powers. There's no way that this word would have been used to describe a goat um, uh, representing Jesus. And in fact, the other goat, the one that is sacrificed, is called the Lord's goat, right? And so there's a contrast here. It's very clear that this isn't talking about Jesus. It's not killed or sacrificed, as we mentioned. But this, and we would also point out that this This ceremony takes place after Leviticus 16, verse 20, after the entire congregation and the tabernacle and the people and the priesthood have all been reconciled. So atonement is complete at this time. But yet this ceremony takes place, transferring all of the guilt that had been in the sanctuary onto the live goat. So whatever we know, we know this doesn't doesn't represent Jesus, and we know that it's not... This goat is not paying for our sins, as in being our savior from sin, because atonement is complete at this time. Is that clear? Does that make sense? And so, as we see what it's talking about, I believe this is a, a, a bit of an elimination rite. One of my friends uh, called this goat the tote goat, sort of like a garbage truck. And it's here, it comes to the tabernacle, the, the sins are confessed upon it, and it goes out into the wilderness, not to be sacrificed, because it can't ever pay for our sins, but it goes out simply to suffer and to die and to go into oblivion. Now, if we look at what is going on here, I want us to just look in the book of Deuteronomy. If you have your Bibles, look with me in Deuteronomy, 
and we're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 19. And I think this is what God is trying to demonstrate in the plan of salvation, a principle God is trying to demonstrate. Very, very interesting. It's called the law of the malicious witness. Deuteronomy chapter 19, the law of the malicious witness, it goes like this, verse 15. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin, in any sin that he sins, at the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. God is a just and fair God, isn't he? He didn't want an informant society where one person could get another person in trouble just by saying, I saw him do this. No, there had to be at least two or three witnesses, right? Now, beyond that, God would enact a steep penalty for any who would intentionally bear false witness. Notice what it is. If a false witness, verse 16, if a false witness rise up against any man to testify against him that which is wrong, then both the men between the controversy is shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges, which shall be in those days, and the judges shall make diligent inquisition, and behold, if the witness be a false witness and has testified falsely against his brother, then shall you do to him as he had thought to have done unto his brother. Do you understand what's going on here? If you accuse me wrongly of something that, let's say, it's going to be capital punishment, and you are caught falsely accusing me, you pay the penalty that I should have paid if, if, if my accusation had been true. Does that make sense? That's the law of the malicious witness. You are responsible, if you falsely accuse me, for paying the penalty of what I should have to pay if that indeed was a true accusation. And so it says, there, um, in this way you should put away evil from among you. Verse 20. It says, the law of the malicious witness, I believe, is being demonstrated in the last activities of the Day of Atonement. You see, my friends, I have sinned. But, I, but I've accepted Jesus as my Savior. And His blood covers my sin. There is, however, an accuser of the brethren. Who's that? It's Satan. And Satan is the one that tempted me to commit the sin in the first place. Right? Well, some of it, we do a pretty good job even without him. I think we tempt ourselves, right? And as, uh, we, some of us, uh, we don't need much help. But he is the one who is the instigator of sin. And not only does he instigate us in our sins, but he also, friends, stands before the judgment of God and says, Chester can't be accepted back into heaven. Chester can't be there in, those land, in that land wherein righteousness dwells. He sinned. He's the accuser of the brethren. Satan is saying, Chester is not eligible to be in heaven. While Jesus is saying, my blood is sufficient for Chester's sin, Satan is saying, if you take Chester back into heaven, you have to take me in heaven too. You kick me out for sin, you can't take him back. And in the end of the judgment, praise God, the whole point of the investigative judgment, which is a whole topic we don't have time to get into tonight, today, but the whole point of the investigative judgment is to vindicate God's people, and to demonstrate that Jesus' blood is sufficient. That blood taken from the altar, taken all the way through the tabernacle and sprinkled on the mercy seat is enough. And at the end, those who have had faith in Jesus, their sins are blotted out, their names are kept, but guess who? gets placed, upon who gets placed the sins of God's people? 
It's Satan. I believe the scapegoat is a symbol of Satan. And in the final controversy, it's not quite the final end of the controversy, but it's the end of salvation's history. Satan, the Bible says in Revelation 20, is taken and bound and put in a bottomless pit. He's going to have a millennium to bear our sins. Not in a salvation or an atoning way, you understand, but simply out of justice in harmony with the law of the malicious witness. He accused me of those sins of which I am now innocent, and now he bears the penalty that I should have to bear. The point is, the sanctuary is cleansed. God's people are cleansed. And eventually, as fire cleanses this earth and the devil and his angels, that the Bible records, will be turned to ashes, the whole universe is cleansed from sin. That is the lesson the Day of Atonement is trying to teach us. Sin will not last forever. It's going to be getting, gotten rid of. It's going to be put on the one who's really responsible. Jesus paid my price. I can be saved through him. Atonement is only through his blood. But there is going to be a final transfer of punishment to the one who is falsely accused, the one who has tempted, the one who has made um, so many accusations against God's people. I don't know about you, my friends, but that's good news to me. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 13, Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Oh, what a wonderful day that's going to be. No more sin. No more temptation. You'll never have to weigh, is that true or not? Are they telling me a truth or a lie? Is this what? Never again. No more sin, no more guilt, no more pain, no more suffering, no more sickness or disease or death. Oh, what a wonderful day that will be. Nahum verse, uh, chapter 1 and verse 9, our scripture for today, He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. You know, sometimes we're, we're tempted in our little peon brains of, you know, less than a century of experience, we're tempted to say, God, why are you taking so long? But I can assure you one thing, my friends. God knows what He's doing. And the purpose that God has in mind and that He will accomplish, He will accomplish it, is the final eradication of sin from human experience. And once it's cleansed from this universe, it will not ever happen again. Affliction will not rise up a second time. What a day of rejoicing that will be. You want to be a part of that? I want to be a part of that. And I want my sins to go beforehand to judgment. I want them to be blotted out in the times of refreshing that come from the presence of God. And if that's your desire, I just invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray and ask God to make that a reality. Father in heaven, Today, we just thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he has a plan to cleanse the camp of Israel, to cleanse the sanctuary of the records, that he's going to come again not as a sin-bearer, but without sin unto salvation. Lord, there's going to be a transfer of guilt at that day, but it's not going to be to your people. It's going to be to the accuser of the brethren. Justice will be served. The law of the malicious witness will be kept. 
And one day, Father, there's going to be a final eradication of no more, no more sin, no more suffering. Death itself is going to be cast into the lake of fire. And you've promised that sin will not rise up a second time. Lord, today we just pray that we might be a part of that glorious day that we might be able to keep our hearts steadfastly trusting in your heart, that we might be enabled to simply surrender. Lord, it's not complicated. You haven't made it hard, and yet our pride gets in the way. If we can just surrender to your love, Father, you'll save us. Lord, this week we studied about the sanctuary, and the only thing the sinner could really take credit for was killing the lamb. We come here before you... Jesus, recognizing that the only thing we can take credit for is your death. We killed you. It's not something to brag about. It's something to marvel that you went willingly because you loved us. Lord, as we, we look at the sanctuary, we just want to be a part of this whole process as we follow you by faith into your ministry in the most holy place I believe even now, I pray that you'll cleanse our hearts from sin, that they might be blotted out one day soon, that you can come, you can claim us as your own, and that we can see you recreate a new heavens and a new earth, and that we can experience you wiping the tears from our eyes and realize that there will never again be any more sorrow, no more tears, no more crying, for the former things have passed away. Lord, we're looking forward to that day. And we thank you for a Savior who makes it all possible. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.